0: Hi you guys, Um, it's so fun to be here. Before I just start talking at you, I would like to root ourselves in the passage. So I'm gonna start by reading the scripture and then I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll actually get into the meat and bones or meat and potatoes of today, okay? Ecclesiastes 5, one through seven. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Let's pray. Lord, um, what a gift and an honor this is to be here today today. Um, teaching your word. Um, I'm so humbled. I'm so grateful for this community and for this family. Um, Thank you, Lord, for this community. It has been such a blessing to me and I'm sure to so many others in this room. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just come into this room, that you would just fall heavy on each of our hearts, that you would open up each individual heart in this room, Lord, to hear your word to feel what you have for us in this passage today, Lord, um, and that that we would actually respond and do something about it. Thank you for who you are, Lord. Thank you for the fact that you love us with such sacrificial love. Um, And let's see what you have for us today, Lord. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so um, Dave gave a little bit of an intro, but I'm just, I'm also going to introduce myself to you guys, if that's okay. So um, my name is Brittany Dykus, like Dave mentioned. Um, my husband, Brock, and I have been coming to Church of the Open Door for roughly three years. Um, for context, the first service that we ever watched online, because COVID, um, was this, the uh, sermon where Dave Bricky was announced. So for those of you that have like been around that long, that gives you some context for how long Brock and I have been watching and then ultimately attending Open Door. Um, just for some fast facts about me, because as Dave mentioned, some of you know me, which by the way, whoever did the woo-woo about amen, I like teared up. That was literally the nicest thing I've ever heard. My bet is that it's Keith, Keith Page, but I could be wrong. But anyway, you guys are amazing, so thank you for the support. Um, so some of you know me, but many of you do not. So just to give you some fast facts, um, I am not on staff at Church of the Open Door. I'm not even in ministry full-time. Um, I have a full-time job in sales and marketing that I love, and also um, I feel very strongly that as believers and as family members to a church community, we are called to use our gifts for the glory of God and for the glory of the kingdom. So um, through that calling, I ended up Applying at Talbot School of Theology. So, in the early mornings, late nights, and weekends, I uh, also study often, (laughs) study and write. Um, And so, I am pursuing my master's of Bible exposition at Talbot. So, a passion point of mine, the reason why I wanted to go to seminary in the first place is because I absolutely love looking at passages of Scripture, diving in, particularly passages of Scripture that are on the surface difficult or make us go, ooh, or where we just have a lot of question marks. So I love the Old Testament. (laughs) And when Dave um, Dave and I spoke and he was like, hey, we're going to be going through Ecclesiastes, what do you think about preaching one of the passages there? I was like, yes, that's probably going to be hard, but yes, let's do it. Because there's so many passages in this beautiful book of the Bible where we're like, what? <laughs> so if this passage feels like that for you, here's my goal for today. Um, I am just a lead learner. That's my point, by the way, in saying all of that. Like, I'm not on staff, I'm, I'm normally sitting right there, I'm just the lead learner. Um, and what my goal for today is, is that I want to just kind of like bring you guys into what I have learned about this passage over the last two months of really marinating in it. Does that sound good? Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Um, So with that, let's go ahead and let's just root ourselves into the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. Um, Some of you guys might have been with us for the last five weeks. Uh, Some of you might be new or maybe you just like you've been busy and you haven't been around. So I'll just give sort of a broad overview. So the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. That's the genre of this book of the Bible. And um, what's important to know, not just about wisdom literature, but really about um, Old Testament literature in general, is that in the ancient Near East, um, the writers of the Old Testament told stories and conveyed information very differently than we do in the West. Here's what I mean by that. So in the West, when we are telling a story, watching a movie, reading a book, whatever, this is how it goes. Um, The story starts, And then a bunch of stuff happens. And then eventually, at the end of the story, there's some sort of point. There's some sort, that's supposed to be a heart. I'm just as good of a drawer as Dave, you guys. Um, (laughs) um, So that's how we tell stories in the West. There's a start, a bunch of stuff happens, and then at the end, that's the point, that's the conclusion. Right? Can everyone think of a book, story, time they were telling information where that's the pattern that they used? Not so in the ancient Near East. In Hebrew culture and throughout the Old Testament, we see a structure that actually looks more like this. So what happens in this structure is the story starts, a bunch of stuff is explored along the way. In the middle of the story or of the information that's being conveyed is the point, and then the script kind of flips, and then you sort of revisit all of the things that have happened up here, you revisit it again, and then sometimes there's like a little bit of a conclusion at the end where it's like it revisits the point that was in the middle, but like the point is in the middle in a lot of ancient Near East literature. And that's the case with Ecclesiastes as well. Now, why does that matter? Um, So here's something that I'm very excited about about this passage. Scholars believe that the passage that I just read and the passage that we are going to methodically dig into today is this theological center. So throughout the last five weeks, um, we've had a lot of moments where the Kohelet, the teacher, the person who is speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes, is um, putting on all of these different personalities, all these different hats. He's sort of exploring this big picture, philosophical, wisdom, literature question of like, what is the point of all this? Like, as humans living what we call life, what is the point of all this? And so through Ecclesiastes, he's been going through, and he's been saying, is this the point? Is this the point? No, that's, no, that's garbage. Dave said he's a, he's sort of almost like a, a spiritual or a holy garbage collector. He's going through saying, oh, is it riches? Is that the point? No, that's not the point. That's meaningless. Oh, is it trying to define the seasons and, and really achieve? No, that's not the point either. So he's going through, and he's sort of knocking all of our idols off of their pedestals. And today, he is going to do another trash collection, we'll get there, but then we're going to get to the, to the point, to the theological center of this book. So today, there's actually like a little bit of hope and a lot of truth for us to root into. Does that make anyone excited after what we've been through in Ecclesiastes? Okay, good. Good. All right, so I mentioned how the Kohelet, the teacher, the speaker in the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of like a spiritual garbage collector. And today, the garbage that he is about to take out of our hearts is the garbage of dead ritualistic religion. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to reread the passage again. And for the bodily kinesthetic learners in the room, what I want you guys to do, if you're down, is every time you hear the word fool, I want you to like count with me like this, Okay? Because there are, there are a certain number of things. I'm not gonna give it away, I almost said it. There's a certain number of things that the Kohelet calls foolish. And for the rest of our time today, we're sort of gonna break down those three things, okay? Are you guys cool with that? You're tracking with me? You're gonna count with me? You're not gonna leave me out to dry? Okay, let's read it again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know I see you, who do not know that they do wrong. <laughs> do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Okay, so how many times did he call things foolish? Three, amazing. Thank you for the response. It makes me feel less alone up here. Um, So we see that the Kohelet calls three different Jewish religious practices foolish. So here's sort of the structure of what we're going to be playing with for the rest of today. We're going to take those three things that he called foolish. Again, all three of them are Jewish religious practices. And we're going to see how each of those three things also correspond to a heart posture that we may or may not feel in our own spiritual life, even as new covenant believers. Okay? So, um, and then, oh, and then at the end of all three of those um, breakdowns, I'm going to have a reflection question for you guys, um, and I, I don't want those to just be, like, things that are on the screen. My genuine hope is that you guys, like, actually do reflect on these questions, that you write them down, you put them in your phone, and that eventually this is something that you come back to, hopefully again and again, to really have as, like, a heart posture reflection, Okay? All right, so um, our first section, the first thing that the Kohelet calls foolish um, in context is verse one guard your steps when you go to the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. So if we're going to be talking about fools again and again, we sort of need to know like, well, what is that? What is a fool? So throughout scripture, we see that this concept of a fool is consistently contrasted with the idea of someone being wise. It's like a dichotomy that's used all throughout scripture, but especially throughout the Old Testament. So in that biblical context, a fool was someone who disregarded God, ignored what he said, didn't really care about Yahweh whereas someone who was wise was someone who um, dedicated their lives to the Lord, had reverence for the Lord, and, and ultimately did what the Lord said. So that's sort of the distinction that we're going to see all throughout this entire passage. Now, um, in in terms of the term sacrifice of fools, because again, that's the first thing that the Kohelet is calling foolish, is the sacrifice of fools. Now, in... Um, In the Jewish faith, all throughout the Old Testament, of course, sacrifices were important. And what we see throughout the Old Testament, specifically throughout the Old Testament prophets, is that again and again, we see that the people of Israel were sometimes giving sacrifices to the Lord, but when they were, a lot of the times, it was out of obligation. It was out of checking a box, because they had to not because they actually wanted to be with God or to approach the temple, but because they had to. There's again and again, there's this sense of obligation and throughout the Old Testament prophets, we see God saying, no, hold on a second. I I don't want your sacrifices if it comes with this heart posture of obligation. I want your hearts. I want you to come to me because you want to, because you want to be in relationship with me, not because you have to. If it's out of obligation, I don't want it. So this is the sacrifice of fools that the Kohelet is referencing in this first verse of the passage. Now, here's the Kohelet's first harsh reality of the day for us. (laughs) Um, Let's be real. That heart posture might not be that different for some of us. Because the question here is, why are you here right now? Why are you here at Church of the Open Door on Sunday? Is it because it's habitual? That's just what you do on Sunday mornings? Is it because um, that's what a good Christian boy or girl, or in the Kohelet's original context, a good Jewish boy or girl does? Is it because your spouse, like, drugged you in the car earlier this morning? Why are you here? So that is the first, um, that's the first contemplative question that I want us to actually be thinking about over the next day, week, month, whatever. Why are you here? And by the way, it doesn't just have to be about being physically at church on Sunday. This question, this heart posture of obligation, that applies to virtually every faith-based practice in our lives. Why do you play worship music in your car? Why do you listen to Christian podcasts? Why do you go to Bible study? Why do you have a prayer journal? Why do you do literally any of those things? And if the answer is, man, I think it might be out of obligation. What do I do with that? The Kohala actually also gives us um, a solution to that too. He encourages us in verse one to draw near to listen rather than offering this sacrifice of obligation. Now, when we hear this phrase, draw near to listen, or even just the word listen, it would be really easy to be like, okay, so am I supposed to just like sit in silence before the Lord? Maybe. There's a place for, you know, the practices of solitude and silence, no doubt. But even more so, one of the commentaries that I read um, on this passage said that the most frequently voiced complaint in the Bible is that people don't listen, and the author went on to make the connection between listening and obedience. So think about this for a second. Like, take off, we can take off our church hats for a second and just, like, think like human beings. What do you mean when you say, oh, my gosh, my kids are not listening to me today? What do you mean when you look at your best friend and you say, you should have listened to me? We don't mean that their eardrums stopped working physically. We mean that they're not doing what we said. And so in the same way, when the Lord comes to us and says, draw near to listen, this isn't just about silence and solitude, although those are important spiritual discipline practices in our lives. This is also about drawing near to hear what God has for us and then actually obeying what he says actionably. So what would it be like to examine our heart posture and to ask the Holy Spirit where needed, to give us that shift, away from obligation, away from the have to, and instead to shift our heart posture to one of listening and obedience before him. That's foolish thing number one. (laughs) All right, are you guys with me? Yes, okay, great. Um, all right, for for the second thing that the Kohelet calls foolish, um, we move into verses two and three for our second heart posture. Um, so I'll just read those two verses again so we can reroute in. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. All right, so in this Piece of the Kohelet's instruction. um, He says that many words are what mark the speech of a fool. Now, what's super cool actually about this entire passage is that all three of the heart postures that we're going to be talking about today are reiterated in the New Testament by Jesus himself, which is super cool because, like I said, some points of, of what we've been exploring in Ecclesiastes were like, I don't think we should put that on a mug. That doesn't feel like great advice to me. And again, that's because, as Dave has said, the purpose of wisdom literature is to get us to ask better questions. It's not always just to be taken at face value. But in this case, with this passage, all three of these heart postures are reiterated by Jesus himself. There's something to this. So in this case, the speech of a fool being marked by many words is the act and the heart posture of performance. Now, what Jesus says in his preaching, centuries later, he, he calls out the, the act of performance or the heart posture of performance in two different ways. First, in Matthew 6, when he's getting ready to tell his disciples the Lord's Prayer and answer the question, like, this is how you should pray. Before he says what they should do, he says what they shouldn't do. And he says, don't go on babbling like the pagans. Very similar, right, to the words of the Kohelet. Many words mark the speech of a fool. In that culture, both in the Old Testament times and also later in New Testament times with the Roman Empire, pagan religions had this belief that the more bombastic that you got in your prayers, that the louder that you were, that the more that you rambled, that the the bigger the emotions in your prayer, the more bombastic that you got, the more likely you were to get whatever God you were trying to pray to's attention, So the first side of this two-sided coin of performance is the act of, like, putting on a show for the sake of the Lord. So that's performance, like, the foolishness of performance number one. Now, the other side of the coin that Jesus calls out later in his own ministry in Luke Luke 18... With the parable of the Pharisee and the tax tax collector is still performance, but it's a slightly different kind. Do you guys remember the parable where the Pharisee is like, he's praying in the temple and he's like, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like these sinners. Look what I do. I tithe. I come to the temple. I'm rock solid. But meanwhile, Jesus calls Pharisees all throughout his ministry, hypocrites. He gives us this visual that they have a polished exterior, that they're presenting something good externally while their insides are absolutely rotting to the core. So within the foolishness of performance, we have a two-sided coin here. We have the performance of putting on a show and we have the performance of inauthenticity. Now, one thing that I, I want to call out like definitively in this passage, in this part of the passage in particular, is it would be really easy to read what the Kohelet says about many words marking the speech of a fool and everything that he says in verses two and three that we've already read. It'd be very easy to look at that and think to ourselves, are we sure God wants to hear from me? Maybe I should just leave him alone. Maybe if I do, if I do have something that really matters, then maybe I should just come to him and like keep it short, sweet, and to the point. It'd be very tempting to read this at face value and think that that's what we're instructed to do with prayer. But guys, I wanna be so clear and I wanna nip that idea in the bud because the pages of this book are threaded, threaded from Genesis to Revelation with prayer, prayers that include the exuberance of joy and victory and the anguish of grief and lament and everything in between. We see it again and again and again and again with the prayers that are in this book. So, no, (laughs) the answer can't be, well, I think I should just leave God alone. That's not it. But remember, the purpose of wisdom literature is to get us to ask better questions. So in this case, the question isn't, can I be authentic with God? The answer to that question definitively is yes. But rather, the question that we should be asking is Am I being authentic with God? When I do pray, am I putting on a show? Am I bringing my actual authentic heart to the foot of the cross? Or am I just saying what I think God maybe wants to hear? Am I being authentic with God? So that's our second foolish heart posture. Um, Finally, our third foolish heart posture um, is found in verses four through six. So I'll read it again just to reiterate. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Now, in order to understand these verses, it's super important that we understand culturally what a vow even was, because that's not something that we do, right? So in the Old Testament... Um, the Jewish law, what we know as um, the first five books of the Bible, specifically in Deuteronomy, it lays out this concept of a vow that was essentially like a if-then agreement between someone or multiple people in Israel and the Lord. So it would look a little something like, um, well, a really great example is in 1 Samuel when Hannah is wailing at the temple and she says, Lord, if you will give me a child, then I will dedicate him to you and I I will ensure that he spends his whole life serving you. It's this if-then statement with God. Now, to be clear, Jesus abolished this practice in Matthew 5. He was like, enough's enough with the vows. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So this is not a practice that we engage in today, but I I think what you'll find is that the heart posture can actually be similar. So um, what we see in this passage, the insinuation is that Folks in Israel were making these vows with God, these if-then statements of, Lord, if you do this, then I will do this. God was following through on his end of the bargain and doing the thing, and then the people of Israel were like, never mind, and not fulfilling their end of the deal. So several of the commentaries that I read said, you know, what's being addressed here is a heart posture of trying to manipulate God, of dangling a carrot in front of him and saying, if you do this, then I'll do this. So the question here, again, it's a heart posture question. And so the question for us is, in what ways Have I been trying to get God to just do what I want him to do? Are there areas in my life where I'm playing games with God? Where I'm dangling a carrot of my own? What is my heart posture in all of this? So, in this passage, we have seen three different foolish approaches to God. We've seen approaching God out of obligation, We've seen approaching him with an inauthentic performance, putting on a show. And now we've seen approaching him with manipulation and ulterior motives of just trying to get what we want. So in verse seven, um, the Kohelet labels all three of these ways to approach God as the word of Ecclesiastes, habel. So I think there's a slide, I think I did this, with a couple different translations. Yes. So you can see here, um, I put three different translations of this same verse 7a, the first part. For For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. That's the word habel. For in many dreams and in many words, there is futility. That's the word habel. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. That's the word habel. Now, this word is so important to understand virtually anything in Ecclesiastes because it's used 38 times in this book. So we have to at least have like a baseline understanding of what we're talking about when we use this word. Dave has mentioned over the last few weeks that this word habel, it, it's a metaphor. So it can, it can sort of shift and grow and change depending on the specific context that it's being used in one of those 38 times. But big picture, he's described it as when smoke is in the air and then, and then suddenly it's not. Or when smoke is in the air and you try to grab it. And what are you really grabbing? That's the baseline of what Habel means, but the metaphor for Habel that I sort of want to lean into today is the idea of a thick cloud or a mist, something that obstructs our vision, that prevents us from seeing and feeling and connecting to what is real. Um, I was just in Switzerland for two weeks um, to celebrate my five-year anniversary with Brock, which was so fun. It was, right, so nice, it was so fun. Um, And when we got there, it was a little cloudy, a little rainy, Um, there was a lot of thick mist going around. And so we get to our hotel, and and this is what we see. And uh, uh, later, actually, um, we went up to the top of one of the mountains, and the, the cloud of mist was so thick, you guys, it was like, we could probably see maybe 50 feet in front of us, like, you couldn't see very far, and at one point, Brock goes, There's nothing to even see here. Well, if you've been to Switzerland, you know that that's the exact opposite of accurate. There's everything to see in Switzerland, but we literally couldn't see anything. There was nothing for us to see because there was this thick cloud or mist that was obstructing everything. But then the next day, the sun came out, burned away the cloud, and instead we saw this from our hotel. And guys, this is the visual of Habel in this passage. This is what the Kohelet is after. To say that in all of our obligation and of all of our performance and in all of our manipulation, that is covering thickly, maybe to the point where we can't even see that there's anything else. That is covering what is true and what is meaningful and what is the purpose of why we are here. So, um, so what is the purpose of life, <laughs> right? Like, what is this theological center? Um, how do we clear away these attitudes of Hebel, th- these mists in our hearts? Um, the Kohelet tells us in the last three words of the passage. He says, therefore, fear God, Now, um, because in the English language, the word fear means, like, afraid and terrified, um, this concept of therefore fear God can, like, make us have some question marks. What does that actually mean about the God that we serve? Um, So a a perhaps better translation, um, which is actually in the NIV 1984, which is what I have, fun fact. Um, a better translation is therefore stand in awe of God. Um, to stand in awe of God, to fear God, is to acknowledge who he is and what he has done in our lives and in the lives of those around us to the point where we, we physically respond where our our hands are opening and maybe we're on our knees and maybe there's tears glistening in our eyes and maybe our jaws are dropped and we just cannot believe in awe and astonishment and reverence and wonder. We just cannot believe who God is and what he's done. We know what it's like to feel that sense of awe and wonder and excitement and astonishment with other people in our lives. I felt it this morning when I watched Simone Biles do like her flips. It's insane. So we know what it's like to have awe and astonishment and wonder for other people and loved ones in our lives. But do we know what it's like to actually have that feeling for God himself? So the final reflective question from the Kohelet is when was the last time When was the last time that I felt this sense of awe and astonishment for the Lord? Have I ever felt that sense of awe and astonishment for the Lord? So, that takes us to the end of our passage. I was reading um, a book for school earlier this week. And it said, when we explore scripture, um, when we explore scripture, The question that we should ultimately be seeking to ask is not what does this mean, but the question we should ultimately be seeking to ask when we explore scripture is what can I obey? So what can we obey from this, from these reflective questions? Um, Here's what I want each of us to do. You're you're not gonna hear this in church very often, okay? But I want everyone to pull out their phones. Yikes, I'm trusting you. Like, don't start checking the notifications. Don't start doing the things. Don't scroll Instagram. But I want you guys to take out your phones, and I want you to take a picture of the reflective questions that are about to be on the screen. So this is the ultimate question that I want, that I hope that you guys will reflect on over the course of the next day, week, month, maybe year, depending on where you're at with God right now. How have these three attitudes of Habel, a heart posture of obligation, of performance, of manipulation, of manipulation, How have those thick clouds of Habel obstructed my vision and my ability to connect with God in authenticity and surrender? My prayer is that you guys, the reason why, by the way, the reason why I want you guys to actually have these on your phones, taking notes is so wonderful and it's so important and you should always take, I like love taking notes with pen and paper, that's important. And also, what do we have with us all the time? Every second of literally every day. We have our phones, yeah, thank you for answering. We have our phones. So my hope is that over the next day, week, month, whatever, that you will pull out the picture that you just took and you'll come before the Lord. You'll draw near to listen and obey. And you will ask him, Lord, how have these attitudes of Habel been obstructing my vision for you? And if you're you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, first of all, I'm obsessed with the fact that you're here and I hope you keep coming back. But if you're, if you're looking at that reflective question and you're like, I don't, I don't know that I've ever connected with God, um, then I have a reflection question for you too. Um, if that's you, then what I hope you'll reflect on is how does my soul respond to hearing that what God actually wants from me is authenticity? <sighs> that the deepest, most broken, most hurting parts of my heart, the parts I'm ashamed of, the parts that I wish didn't exist, the parts that if I had my way, I would just hide from God altogether? How does your soul respond to knowing that those are actually the things that he wants from you? My prayer is that we'll reflect on these questions, guys. And if as you're reflecting by yourself, with the Lord, with others, talk about this, externally process with the people you came with, and as you're doing that, if you feel the holy nudge of conviction of like, man, maybe I should take a step closer at Open Door. Maybe, maybe I should take a step closer to the Lord. Are there ways to do that at Open Door? The answer is yes. We have worship nights, prayer classes, Bible studies in small groups, so many different ways to come alongside other believers, kneel before the cross, and ask the Lord, Clear our habella away, Lord. Show us who you truly are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the invitation to even come before you in authenticity and surrender. As we go through the next day, week, month, year of our lives, Lord, may we continue to ask you, Lord, where, am, where is my vision being obstructed? Where is there a thick mist of Hebel that is preventing me from seeing what is true? Where have I come to you out of obligation? Where have I tried to perform for you? Where have I tried to manipulate you, Lord? Help us to see Holy Spirit come and thank you for asking us to be authentic with you. In Jesus' name, amen.